Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. A couple of shows back, I had talked about some pivotal music-related events that took place in 1981. MTV, Blondie's influence on rap, Ozzy biting the heads off of doves, and then the release of Rush's Moving Pictures record. And there are some other things I wanted to touch on as well, just because so much happened musically in 1981. This week I'm going to get into the formation and lineup changes of some hard rock and metal bands that would go on to sell millions of records and shape and even define their respective musical genres. The first of those bands is an old favorite of mine, Metallica, who along with fellow Big Four thrash metal acts Slayer and Anthrax would form in the year 1981. Danish-born drummer and Metallica co-founder Lars Ulrich came from a long line of tennis players. He was the son of professional tennis player Torben Ulrich, and his father Einar Ulrich also played pro tennis and, in fact, represented Denmark in the 1924 Summer Olympics. Lars showed a lot of promise as a tennis prodigy himself, and the family moved to Los Angeles when Lars was just 16 so that he could train professionally. However, when he got there, rather than play tennis, Ulrich began playing drums. In the documentary The Story of Anvil, Ulrich mentions that the turning point for him came when he went to a Y&T show in L.A. At that moment, he decided he wanted to be a musician. Guitarist James Hetfield wasn't too far away at that moment. He was a native Californian born in 1963 and living in Downey, California, about 13 miles southeast of Los Angeles. Hetfield was the son of opera-singing mother Cynthia Bassett and father Virgil Lee Hetfield, who drove a truck for a living. James had a younger sister and two older half-brothers from his mom's first marriage. Hetfield's parents divorced when he was just 13. They were both super-devout Christian scientists who strongly disapproved of medicine and any form of medical treatment in accordance with the Christian science faith. Even after Cynthia had been diagnosed with cancer, they still refused treatment to remain loyal to their faith, despite the fact that she was dying. Cynthia died from her cancer in 1979, and Hetfield was just 16 years old. After the death of his mom, Hetfield went on to live with his older half-brother David, these events would later lend themselves to the aggression and the lyrical content of Metallica's music over the course of their career, inspiring lyrics for songs like The God That Failed from the Black Album and Dyer's Eve from And Justice for All. Hetfield's father, Virgil, would die 17 years later, in late 1996, during Metallica's Load tour. Hetfield's life as a musician began at age nine when he first began taking piano lessons. Around that time, he started fooling around on his half-brother David's drum kit. And then at age 14, he started playing guitar and joined several bands in his teenage years. He had a band called Obsession, another called Leather Charm, and a host of others. Now, whereas Ulrich had been transformed by the music of Y&T, Hetfield names Aerosmith as the reason why he wanted to play guitar as a kid, having been heavily influenced by them at a very young age. So late in 1981, Lars Ulrich meets James Hetfield, but it wasn't exactly straightforward. 
Ulrich put an ad in an LA classified ads paper called the Recycler, which was typically used to sell cars and other stuff like lawnmowers, electronics, appliances, that sort of thing. The ad said something like, heavy metal fan and drummer seeking other musicians to form a band. Ulrich named some of the obscure British metal bands he was into at the time, bands like Diamond Head and Tigers of Pantang. Not many North American people had heard of these groups in 1981. So Ulrich got responses from people asking if the bands that he named were like Kansas or Styx. So that was the end of that. Eventually, a kid named Hugh Tanner asked if he could show up one day, and he also asked if he could bring a friend of his along. And this tall, skinny, very shy, awkward kid accompanied Tanner to the audition. The kid's name was James Hetfield. So the three played together, and apparently didn't think much of each other. Ulrich's account of the first meeting was that there was just no connection between the players. And Hetfield's recollection was that Ulrich was a terrible player with a multicolored drum kit and cymbal stands that kept falling over. He and Tanner passed on the opportunity to do anything further with Ulrich. For his part, Ulrich said that he felt some sort of inexplicable kinship with Hetfield, however. That summer he left Southern California, though, to go to Europe and follow around bands like Motorhead and Diamond Head that were touring around playing festivals there. When he returned in the fall, he called Hatfield and asked him if he wanted to give it another shot, just without Tanner. Hatfield's side of the story is that Ulrich lured him back with the promise of having a spot on an upcoming metal compilation record called Metal Massacre that Ulrich had secured through his charm and depth of musical knowledge. According to Ulrich, he and Hatfield then connected through the European metal records Ulrich had collected during his time in England that summer, saying that Hetfield knew very little even about bands like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden at that point, as he had focused more on American bands like Aerosmith and Ted Nugent. Once they agreed they would form a band together, Hetfield's exposure to all of the underground European bands that Ulrich had introduced him to led to their preference to sound more British At that time, radio-friendly hard rock was beginning to take hold in Los Angeles, and Ulrich and Hetfield wanted to sound less like those bands, and more dirty and raw, like Motorhead, or like Paul Diano-era Iron Maiden. At that time, the Sunset Strip Clubs were dominated by bands like Rat and Motley Crue, which back then also had somewhat of a harder edge, but Ulrich and Hetfield wanted to be heavier still whether it meant being outsiders or not. They settled on the name Metallica after Ulrich's friend Ron Quintana had been brainstorming names for a heavy metal fanzine that he had created, and he narrowed down his list of names to two. Metallica was one of the options, and the other was Metal Mania. Ulrich talked him into choosing Metal Mania for the fanzine so that he could keep the name Metallica for himself. Hetfield designed the logo, and then they were ready to seek out another guitar player and a bassist to complete their lineup. The band was officially formed on October 28, 1981, five months after Ulrich and Hetfield first met. They started out as a covers band, with a twist. They figured that they could learn the obscure songs of their European heroes that nobody in LA had heard of, 
and then get up and play those songs live, hoping people may think that they were originals. So they learned a set of covers by bands like Diamond Head, Blitzkrieg, Sweet Savage, Merciful Fate, and then they started playing gigs a few months later. As they did that, they took the time to begin writing their own material and working it into the sets gradually, all the while becoming tighter as a band. So in early 1982, Metallica recorded its first original song called Hit the Lights for that spot on the Metal Massacre compilation record. Hatfield played bass, rhythm guitar, and sang, and Ulrich played drums, and a guitar player named Lloyd Grant was credited with playing lead guitar on the track. Metal Massacre 1 was released on June 14, 1982, and early pressings incorrectly spelled Metallica with two T's, making Ulrich and Hetfield very, very angry. They played their first live performance a few months earlier, on March 14, 1982, at Radio City in Anaheim, California, with newly recruited bass player Ron McGovney. Guitarist Dave Mustaine was brought into the band around that time after he replied to their ad and Ulrich and Hetfield saw his very expensive gear. The story there goes that Mustaine didn't even really audition. He was in the room warming up for a while, and when he walked out and asked when the audition was going to start, he was told by Ulrich and Hetfield that he already had the job, at which point they proceeded to go out and buy beer to celebrate. After that first Anaheim gig and their single, they caused quite a stir as they were chosen to open for British metal band Saxon on one of their 1982 US tour dates. This is only Metallica's second gig. In their early days, Metallica experimented with a couple of different vocal and guitar variations, apparently wanting to emulate Diamond Head, whose singer Sean Harris didn't play guitar, nor did their guitarist Brian Tatler sing. Metallica also tinkered with adding another guitar player so that Hatfield could just sing and not play guitar. There was also a point when Metallica wanted John Bush from Armored Saint to sing for the band. Even after the release of Metallica's first record, Kill Em All, Hatfield didn't feel completely secure in his singing abilities. He decided that he wanted to concentrate on guitar playing, and he himself approached Bush and asked him to join Metallica. Bush was the only vocalist that the band considered as a potential frontman, but he turned down that offer because he wanted to stay with Armored Saint, explaining later that the band had been made up from his closest childhood friends. Armored Saint saw a decent amount of fame, but they disbanded in 1992 following the death of their guitar player Dave Pritchard from leukemia. He was only 26 years old. Bush would later go on to joined Anthrax later that same year. Eventually, the finalized Metallica lineup would be Hetfield on lead vocals, rhythm guitar, Lars Ulrich on drums, Dave Mustaine, lead guitar, and Ron McGovney, bass. In late 1982, Ulrich and Hetfield went to see a show at The Whiskey in West Hollywood, where they had an unexpected encounter with bassist Cliff Burton who at that time was playing in the band Trauma. Ulrich and Hetfield watched him play, and they were blown away by Burton's use of the wah-wah pedal. That night, they asked him to join Metallica. Timing was good, of course, because Hetfield and Dave Mustaine both wanted to get rid of current bassist McGovney, 
because they didn't feel like he contributed enough to the band. Cliff Burton initially declined the offer to join, however, but by the end of 1982, he told the band he would accept on the condition that the band relocated to the Bay Area of San Francisco. Metallica's first live performance with Burton was at a place called The Stone in March 1983. Metallica was now ready to finally record their first record, but when record company Metal Blade wasn't able to finance it, the band started looking elsewhere. A guy named Johnny Zazula, or Johnny Z as he was more popularly known, offered to help try to find the band a record deal through some of his contacts at New York City-based record labels. After none of these labels showed any interest, Zazula took matters into his own hands and borrowed money to cover the recording budget himself through a record label that he also started himself. It was called Megaforce Records. In April 1983, Metallica traveled from San Francisco to Rochester to do the record. Now, at this time, the other members were secretly plotting to kick Dave Mustaine out of the band right before the recording sessions because of his excessive drug and alcohol abuse, coupled with his violent behavior. Yeah, the Metallica guys did drink a lot, but allegedly Mustaine drank even more, and that would result in a lot of bad blood within the band. So there was all kinds of stuff going on with these guys. Mustaine brought his dog to rehearsal one day, and apparently the dog jumped up on McGovney's car, scratched the paint. Hetfields yelled at the dog and allegedly kicked it in a fit of rage, which provoked Mustaine to attack Hetfield and McGovney. And following that altercation, Mustaine was fired from the band. But the next day, he called them up and asked to be let back in, and they let him back in. Another one of the popular stories from around that time held that a very intoxicated Mustaine poured a can of beer into the pickups of McGovney's bass, resulting in damage to the bass and more bad blood. So, on April 11, 1983, Mustaine was officially fired from the band in Rochester for his alcoholism, drug abuse, overly aggressive behavior, and general personality clashes with Hatfield and Ulrich. The band packed up Mustaine's gear, drove him to the Port Authority bus terminal, and put him on a Greyhound bus bound for Los Angeles. During the bus ride, Mustaine wrote lyrics on the back of a handbill for the song that would later become Set the World Afire that was on Megadeth's 1988 record, So Far So Good, So What? Exodus guitarist Kurt Hammett apparently replaced Mustaine on the very same afternoon. This was all worked out. A week later, Metallica would give their first live performance with Hammett in Dover, New Jersey, at a nightclub called The Showplace, with a very young Anthrax opening for them. This would mark the first time that those two bands performed live together. During his time in Metallica, Mustaine co-wrote four songs that would eventually appear on Kill 'Em All, and co-wrote two songs that eventually appeared on Metallica's next record, 1984's Ride the Lightning. Mustaine has also claimed that he wrote parts of Leper Messiah, which appeared on Metallica's 1986 record, Master of Puppets. Mustaine, of course, would go on to form Megadeth, and he would also go on to very publicly voice his bitterness over his departure from Metallica. 
he openly attacked Hammett in interviews, saying Hammett stole his role in Metallica. He also expressed his anger at the fact that he believes Hammett achieved popularity by playing guitar leads that he had written himself. In a magazine interview in 1985, he went so far as to say how funny it was that Hammett ripped off every guitar solo he played on Metallica's demos and then was voted number one guitarist in their magazine. On Megadeth's 1985 debut album, Killing Is My Business and Business Is Good, Mustaine included a song called Mechanics, which was a track that he and the other members of Metallica had written and performed together that appeared on Metallica's first record as The Four Horsemen. Mustaine said he did this to straighten Metallica up, in his words, because they had said in the media that he was a drunk who couldn't play his instrument. In the decades that followed, however, tensions would ease and grudges would fade. In the 2004 Metallica documentary, Some Kind of Monster, Mustaine did admit to Ulrich that despite Megadeth's success, he still harbored deep-seated resentments towards the members of Metallica. But in 2019, Mustaine had this to say about James Hetfield. Contrary to what anybody says, and contrary to any of the act that we may put on, I love James, and I know that James loves me. So there you go. Happy ending, I suppose. After the debut album was completed, Metallica initially wanted to call it Metal Up Your Ass. Not surprisingly, this did not garner a lot of support from the record label, and distributors refused to release an album under that name. So... Metallica went with something much softer and gentler. Kill them all. It was released on Megaforce Records in the US and Canada and on a label called Music for Nations in Europe on July 25th, 1983. And it peaked much later on in 1986 at number 155 on the Billboard 200. Initially, the record wasn't a success, but it did earn Metallica a growing fan base in the underground metal scene. And I include myself in this fan base because after seeing the album in a record store in some shopping mall in the southern U.S. on a family vacation in August of 1983 and picking it up for a closer look, I had never previously heard of the band. But after some visual scrutinization of the front and back cover, the band name and the song titles, I decided that I would roll the dice and buy the record. And, you know, after that, I never looked back. I was a diehard fan after that first listen in the car on the way back to Canada using my yellow sports Sony Walkman. And uh, I followed them in print media from my small northern Ontario hometown as best I could. And when it came time for their next record, Ride the Lightning, to come out, I was absolutely ready for it. I still remember the excitement of watching the band grow through Ride the Lightning, through Master of Puppets and through my treasured Garage Days re-revisited cassette LP that came after that. I played that tape over and over again. I wore it out. Metallica would be my favorite band for most of the 80s, really up until, I'd say, the Black Album came out in 1991. Even though I was super proud of them for the success of that record, I felt like success was something that they would always achieve. It was just a matter of time. But based on the nature of the relationship that I had with the band 
and how that relationship had come to be. I just felt like I had to let them go at that point that we had run our course and, and they weren't really for me anymore. Metallica would go on eventually to become one of the most influential heavy metal bands of all time. The band to date has sold more than 130 million records worldwide and weirdly one of the most commercial successful bands of all time too. And they certainly deserve the success. Metallica will always be a really special band to me. All right. Well, I had a few other bands to talk about this week, but it would appear that our friends in Metallica have taken up all of our time, just like my high school days. So next week, we will get into the formation of another Southern California band that came together in 1981. And if you have read the No Sleep Till Sudbury book, you'll know that they were a favorite band of mine before they started wearing polka dotted outfits and James Hetfield and Metallica stole me away from them. Stay tuned. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. <laughs>